Our scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, in its mouth between its teeth, it was told, behold, in its mouth between its teeth was a rib. And it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, and between its teeth it was raised, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this will be fun, right? (laughs) People say the Bible's hard to understand. Come on, cowards. Fantastic beasts and where to find them. Big Daniel, actually, is, is where you find them. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty cra- crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's, you read that, and you're like, man, was pot legal in Babylon or what? It's, and, and believe it or not, like, there are six chapters like this one here at the end of Daniel. And what may even be harder to believe is that we're actually going to do our best to understand at least a tiny bit of it this morning. We're going to do our best. I should have given this one to read. Um, coward. <laughs> yeah, you're stuck with me. <laughs> All right, that's, that's fair. That's fair. So we definitely have a work cut out for us. Uh, but let me, let me just say, like, I, I love end-of-the-world stories. I love them. Like, if there, are, if there are zombies or some mutant disease, robots taking over the planet, or teenagers fighting to death in an arena, uh, I'm a happy camper. Okay? I, I love apocalyptic stories. And, I mean, if you look around, it's pretty clear. I'm not alone in this, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Like, we're, we're obsessed with these kinds of stories, whether it's like The Walking Dead or, or The Hunger Games or, you know, we, we think of even like Game of Thrones or, you know, frankly, like YA literature, young adults. Like, if you go to that section, it's all dystopic, end-of-the-world stuff. That's all. I think it's all it's written for them, right? We're, we're obsessed I mean, anymore, even turn on political news and, I mean, at least feels like apocalypse, doesn't it? We are obsessed with the end. And this isn't a new fad for us as humans. It's always been this way. I don't, I don't just mean like for years or even for decades or, or centuries, but honestly, for millennia, we have been telling stories of how it ends. And so, yes, Daniel, it's weird. It's confusing. It is difficult to understand. 
but it is not without good company. In all kinds of faith backgrounds, religions, cultures, all kinds today, we love talking about the end. In fact, there, there's a new book. I, I'm about a third of the way into it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's called uh, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. These are the kind of books I read. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but in, in this book, I mean, it's just fascinating to me. They, they write, as long as we humans have been telling the story of our beginning, we've also been telling the story of our end. But, but they know in it a remarkable shift that's happened in the last hundred years or so. In fact, they, they trace like the history of Apocalypse. So some of the first writings were from, the, from 2000 BC in Egypt, right? And they go through all the, the, the biblical writings and the medieval period and all of that and Dante and, and all those things. And even now, like focusing on like how, we're, how we continue to develop and, and create and write these stories. But they, they talk about a, a remarkable shift that happened about 100 years ago. In the past, regardless of culture or religion or background, it was always God or the gods that brought Apocalypse. The end, destruction, rebirth or whatever, right? But anymore today, it's almost always us doing the destroying. In fact, they, they chart out how in the past, uh, these kinds of writings, these stories, they were actually meant to bring hope. That someone somewhere is actually going to make things right. But now, instead, they write, it's a destruction of our own making with no hope of renewal. So yeah, scriptures like this, they're difficult, right? But the reality is, we have no trouble believing in apocalypse. I mean, at least to some extent, right? With atheists and, and Christian alike, we all believe an end is coming, Right, that somewhere there's a there's a clock ticking with the end as we know it. It doesn't matter like who you are. Like that's 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 how we how we view it. The hard part for us is believing that there's a God who will actually be the one to make it happen. Because I can I can imagine, you know, a flu strain, or a sentient robot, or a, a president with his finger on the wrong button, right? I can imagine all kinds of things, but God? I mean, zombies are okay, but you bring the big guy into the story, and all of a sudden it feels like, it feels like we're in fairyland, doesn't it? And really, that's, that's the point of this survival book. Um, it's sort of charting historically, sociolo sociologically, philosophically, like how we've changed as a, as a people, how we view reality and what, what really is. And, and, and what they talk about is the fact that Christian or not, we live in a world without God anymore. Like we are completely, as, as a society here, we are, we are as, as completely secularized as possible. We can't even imagine, even Christians, we cannot imagine a God who actually intervenes in, in daily moments of, of life and history, who has something charting. We only, like what we see, that's what we get, right? What we can put in a, in, in a test tube and, and test, or what we can study, that's what's really real. Anything else for us is a fairy tale. It's the way all of us function almost all of the time. But what's so fascinating is that they also conclude that, that apocalyptic literature, whether it's the stuff written 3,000 years ago or yesterday, all of it cries out for more. 
Like, like it, it, it doesn't allow us to get away with this sort of closed system, closed off from God and, and, the, and the supernatural. And in fact, um, they write about it in, you can read an excerpt of the book actually in Christianity Today if you want to Google this article. It's called The Myth of the, the Secular Apocalypse, uh, that it doesn't actually exist. There's no such thing. And so what they're saying there is that this genre, be it Daniel and Revelation or The Walking Dead or The Hunger Games, they're all deeply spiritual, religious even. Because they're all trying to tell us what life is about. What it means, if anything at all. What the problem is, if we can even figure it out. If there's hope at all. And where it's going. Good ones and bad ones, they all wake us up to the bigger picture of our reality. And so does Daniel. He's one of the originals when it comes to this genre. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Um, now, a, a couple of, of quick notes before we jump into this, this really bizarre text. We have to keep in mind a few things, that when it comes to this biblical genre, we have to remember that it is meant to give an impression, a picture, a guide, not a timeline or a chart or like a helpful tip on figuring out who the Antichrist is. Like that's, that's not why it's written down for us. We sometimes think that and we want to we want to figure it all out and have our game plan, but that's that's not why it was written. In fact, I mean, you got to think of it. It's, it's a it's a guidebook, not a map. It's an abstract painting, not a chart. I believe that it's true, but almost never literal. That that it's meant to to, to draw up an emotion, um, and really, truly, it's it's. It's to encourage us for today, not to answer all of our questions about tomorrow. It, it's written for we who are here to give us hope, to bolster our reality, not simply to help us figure out what's going to happen next. And one, one other thing to keep in mind with Daniel, this is really important, this helped me as I studied and read all these, you know, these last six chapters, I'm just like, oh man, what, what is happening here? It's helpful for me. Like Daniel, if you've been with us this year, like you know, like Daniel's a professional interpreter of dreams. Like it's what he does. Like and he, he studied it all. He's been doing it there in Babylon. And even he, he has these dreams. He's like, I don't know. Like he, he writes them down for us uh, to understand a little bit, but he, even he doesn't fully understand the things that he sees here. And if he can't figure it out, uh, we're not gonna fare much better. Let's just be, you know, set our expect, expectations accordingly. Um, and yet... There is hope, because as we look at this text, and as we try to wrap up this series in Daniel, there are, there are a few things that are very clear. And in fact, I, I think there are four tips at the end here. Four tips on how to survive the apocalypse while still thriving in Babylon. It's a catchy title, right? I'm thinking of writing a book. I'll let you know how it comes. That's a joke, actually. Okay, so we, we've been with Daniel now essentially for almost 70 years, right? It's only been, this is our eighth week, but it's been 70 years almost in, in Daniel's life. And we've looked at all of the stories that he wrote down for us, the things that he wants us to know as most important in his existence. He's written them down. We've studied them. We've looked at them. Um, and, and one of the things that we, we keep saying over and over again as we've looked at these stories is that Daniel is in a land he doesn't belong, that he's in exile. Uh, he's a stranger, a foreigner. He, it's not home for him there in Babylon. And we've said over and over again, probably every single week together, that's, that is our experience if you're a Christian. This is not home. 
But like this, this is not what we were ultimately meant for, that you and I are strangers in exile waiting with Daniel for a better kingdom, just like he did, waiting and waiting and waiting. But how do we do it? How do we live faithful? How do we do it knowing that an end is coming? Well, let's, let's give it a shot, okay? God help us. Tip, tip number one. Tip number one. It's worse than you think. So endure suffering. It's a good start, right? Huh? <laughs> tip number one, it's worse than you think. Like as bad as you think it is, it's worse. So endure suffering. Because as, as, we, as we read this, like maybe even as you heard, like you could feel the darkness around this, this, these images and the fear, even that Daniel, even Daniel's afraid. Like think about that, Daniel, the level-headed, the courageous, the lion's den guy. Even he is anxious and alarmed. Words like, like terrifying and dreadful. And, and verse, verse two, as he describes it, he says, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four beasts Four great beasts came up out of the sea. And one thing, like for us, we don't think of this like the sea in this way, but for them culturally, the sea is like, that's the abyss. That's, that's the place of chaos and fear and torment. Like they, didn't, they just didn't understand it. They couldn't study it. They didn't know what lived down there. And so if, if there's great beasts, like apocalyptically coming from anywhere, for them, it's, it's going to be the sea. That's, that's where it's at because it's a place of absolute terror and it's being stirred up, right? Which is, which is not a good, a good sign. For us, it might be a little bit like if I said I had a vision and, I mean, don't trust that. But if I, let's just say, um, I had a vision and like out of a black hole, like being stirred up, I saw, I saw a beast, Right? You wouldn't know what I was talking about, but you'd probably know that that wouldn't be your next pet, whatever it is, right? I mean, that's, that for them is what's happening when, they, when it talks about the chaos of the sea. It's coming out of this place of darkness. And these terrible beasts then, they're fighting and, and devouring each other. And worst of all, at verse 21, Daniel says, as I look, the horn, which is part of one of the beasts, made war with the saints, which is God's side of the battle, and prevailed over them. That evil's winning. Now again, not, not literal beasts, okay? But, but one of the things that apocalyptic literature serves to do is it awakens us to the reality that there's more than we can see happening in our world that it's not, it's not as easy as we sometimes like to make it through our very sophisticated 21st century lens. Because you and I, I mean, if we're honest, we tend to think that our, our greatest battle, right, our biggest enemy, like, it's ourselves. It's, it's humans. And so somebody's going to drop the bomb or introduce the wrong virus or we're going to wear out the planet. And it's not that those things couldn't happen. It's that according to God's perspective, that's child's play. Like, it's way worse than that. There is a fiercer war being waged all around us. And our real enemy doesn't have skin. And I'm not talking about the rise of the machines, right? There is a cosmic battle between good and evil. As real as you and me all around us. And you just can't miss it in apocalyptic writings. Which means that like your enemy, it's not that person. 
or those people. It's not that ideology or political party or terrorist organization or, or other religion. It's not that competitor at work or, or any of those other things or people that we send to say, that, that's where my enemy, that's, it's not, it's worse than that. It's not them. We only think they're the problem. There is evil embodied out to get us. I mean, even Paul, 600 years later, wrote about it. He says in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning humans, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I, I know it sounds crazy. Like some of you have already written off everything that we have to say this morning because of this, right? You just cannot get, we, like, we're, again, it's that closed system. We don't have any categories as a people for anything that we cannot see or feel or, or touch. And so we read stuff like that, and it's like, man, this is, save this for the next summer blockbuster hit, right? Not for real life. And we think that we can explain everything. But then there are those moments. I mean, for example, some of you are aware that we as a church here in Olathe, we're, we're closely tethered to the church in Rwanda that we're connected with them and we love one another, care for one another. I had a chance to go and see their work firsthand and be a part of some of the things that they're doing there. And so we've talked as a church that just, it's 22 years ago. I mean, think about this. 22 years ago, when over a period of 120 days, people who had been friends before, who had worked together, who had married one another, had kids together, who had lived peacefully together, in a matter of 120 days, their friends and neighbors killed a million of them. Just like that. And this guy named Romeo Dallaire, uh, he was uh, the UN, Canadian UN peacekeeping uh, commander during that time, stationed in Rwanda. He, he saw the whole thing, was commanded to do nothing, um, had literally watched as the bodies kept piling up. It's a small country, a million people. Tragic. He saw, he saw it all, and, and after, afterwards, and I don't, I don't know anything about his faith background or commitment or anything, anything like that, but afterwards, somebody asks him, could you possibly believe in a God after you saw what you saw? And his response, it shakes me. He says, I know there is a God, because in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore, I know there is a God. And when we encounter real evil, the school shooting, church bombing, religious persecution, those, those moments where, where there's, just, there's just no explanation and, and you cannot, you want to figure it out. And we try, right? We use sociology and, and history and, and brain chemistry. And sure, of course those things play a part, right? But it's so much worse than we think. And friends, if you, if you are skeptical about the existence of God or his active role in our world, I don't, I don't blame you for that. I share some of those. It's hard for me sometimes, right? Um, believe me, I struggle with this. And yet if that describes you if, you, if you have trouble believing in the existence of God, you have to answer the question like, where does, where does evil come from? Like, how, how do you know that evil is evil? How do, you, how do you account for it? How do you know evil's not good and good's not evil? Like, if it's, if it's survival of the fittest, then we should applaud when the powerful take from the weak, shouldn't we? And yet all of us know better. 
There is real evil in our world. Which means that if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have to expect suffering. Just expect it. I mean, we, we here, right, we've been so conditioned by prosperity and comfort and power that we're surprised when we see anything else. Daniel lost everything. Every, every person Daniel knew as, as God's people lost. Every, all of it was stripped away from them. Nothing left. And, and millions of God's people since time and time again. Satan is out to destroy us. Expect to suffer. Expect our rights to be taken away from us. Expect for, for Christians to continue to be marginalized and more so be hated. It's coming, people, no matter who we elect. It is coming. But like Daniel, we can be faithful, can't we? We can be gracious. We can love even those who seek to destroy us because we know better, right? Because we know that they're not really the enemy anyway. That there's more at work behind what we can even begin to imagine. It's worse than you think. Endure suffering. It's fun, right? Were you expecting a cheerier apocalypse? (laughs) Tip number two. Empires come and go, so don't get too comfortable. Empires come and go, so don't get too comfortable. That's, that's the most obvious from this dream. In fact, this dream, I mean, if you were here with us back when we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, um, it's really the same dream. I mean, it's, this one's weirder. Uh, I, yeah, it's weirder. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's, the same, it's the same basic idea. So if, if you remember back then, for those of you here in chapter two, like Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this, this giant statue, right? And it had all these different kinds of materials. And it was meant to, to represent all the, the powerful nations, several hundred years uh, during that period and yet to come. Uh, and, and that all of them one day would be wiped out by this divine bowling ball. That a better kingdom was coming to, to, to annihilate the rest and, and that God was gonna do something amazing for all people as a result of that. That, that, was, that was his dream. We said that week that only one nation lasts forever, and it's not ours. This is the same message, but now it's with animals, which, I don't know, it's kind of fun, I guess. Fantastic beasts and whatnot. Um, again, not, not meant to be literal, but to strike an emotion. And so, so, you know, first of all, you've got this lion slash eagle, right? And it, which is Babylon, most likely, right? That's kind of the idea. It's representing these, these various powerful nations again. But as powerful as they were, its wings are going to be ripped off, Daniel says, and they'll be replaced by a bear instead, which is the Medes and the Persians. This we saw happen in chapter 5, right, with the handwriting on the wall. So this has already kind of been, been part of our, our story together. Uh, next is a leopard with four wings and four heads, which is where I'm like, really, Daniel? Like, who... Who dreams like this? Man. Which uh, likely represents Greece. Alexander the Great, they were the next after the Medes and the Persians. And, and then after that, they were replaced by the, the Romans, right? And their, and their endless Caesar. That's, that's the, the fourth beast. I mean, basically, like it's just your animal version of your Western Civ class, right? If you can remember back then. And what, what's happening here um, 
is essentially that, that God is saying, as he said with the, the first dream, that all of this, these most powerful empires, that thought for sure they would last forever. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, that they would never end. Their power was mighty. They stretched over the entire planet. They will never end, but all of them are gone. Dust and ashes. That's, that's the perspective he has. And I know it's weird for us and the animals and all that. Um, it was a normal part of their cultural expression to think in these terms. Uh, in fact, here's, here's an image from Darius's palace um, dated around the same time period. It's not the same image, uh, but it's, it just shows like this was kind of their, it was their thing, right? They liked kind of combining these weird mystical creatures together. Honestly, we haven't changed that much. It's just a little bit more fun now. Um, but that was, that, was, that was then. It was a normal part of the ancient Near Eastern culture. But still the question remains, why, why is God telling this to Daniel? To remind him and all of God's people that empires come and go. It's what's always happened. It's what always will happen. None of them last forever. Even the most mighty, the strongest, they fall at some point. None of them as followers of Christ, none of them are meant to be our home or our hope. Not even this one. And so we've said over and over again throughout this study that we live as foreigners, as strangers. We're not supposed to fit in. Like if that's your goal, then your goal is lame, right? That's not, that's not, a, that's not Jesus. Like we're not supposed to fit in. You're not supposed to look normal. Not if you're a follower of Christ. That our, our lives our values, our budgets, our parenting, our work, everything that we do, all that we are, all that we have, all of it ought to look different as a result of this, this identity with Christ. That if your life and mine looks the same as your non-Christian neighbors, you're doing it wrong. You're, who is it are you really following? This isn't our home. And so how many of us are just way too comfortable just gotten so cozy. And, and really, I think it goes back to this, this closed system idea that we live, we live for the now, the moment, for what we can see. This is it, right? That's, that's our life. It's, we get 70 to 80 years, and so we got to grab every single thing we can because then it's gone. We just assume that there is no God, and so we have to take all of it now. We have to make the best of it. And what I love about Daniel is he does make the best of it, doesn't he? I mean, he lives uh, with integrity and flourishing. He works hard in Babylon. He, he serves in, in the government there, and he, he cares for both Babylonian and Jewish people alike there in that place. He works for the flourishing of his temporary home, but he never forgets that it's only temporary, that it's not meant to last, even though he spent almost his entire life there and most likely dies there waiting and yet to see the way some of us talk, me too, the way we talk about our goals for our kids, like our highest objective for them is to be successful now, right? It shows, it shows where our home is. The way we talk about our lifestyle goals, the things that we long for, the way we talk about politics, it shows what we're living for. And we are short-sighted, aren't we? Where's your home? Because one day, like it or not, another weird beast is going to come out of the sea and devour us. 
metaphorically speaking. Empires come and go, so don't get too comfortable. All right, deep breath, halfway. All right, you got this? You do it? Two more to go. Number three, tip three. Judgment is on its way, so get ready. It's got to get worse before it gets better. Judgment is on its way, so get ready. Look at, look at verse 9, for example, as, as it continues. So Daniel, he's just described these, these beasts and these horns and all this weird stuff. And then the next thing he sees is, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was, was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Judgment is coming. And it doesn't matter which apocalyptic story you're reading, right? It's, it's true in all of them. Judgment is coming. But the reality is with a subject like judge, judgment, there's always two sides to this coin, isn't there? I mean, for some, judgment is good news. For those who have been oppressed, marginalized, for those who have been truly hurt and abused, who've had lives taken away from them, people like Daniel who've lived waiting and waiting, who've seen the worst of humanity poured out upon him, Judgment is, is good news for him. If I tell you what, we don't like talking about God's judgment, do we? Not, not us Americans. You want to know why? It's because we live in the suburbs, honestly. I mean, it, it's because most of us, not all of us, but most of us have been so deeply insulated from true evil that we can't imagine a God having to, having to punish anything, right? Because the worst that can happen is like somebody says something mean to you on Facebook, right? But where people, where people are truly being, like, like think, like what, what is it for our brothers and sisters in Rwanda who literally watched as their children were killed right before their eyes? We don't know what that's like. Or for Christians in places like Sudan or, or Iraq or Iran, where to be identified with Christ is to, is to take a mark of death or at least of persecution and imprisonment, but still continue to do it because they believe that Jesus is actually better. We don't, we don't know what that's like. Or, or what about for people who continue to be marginalized even within our own nation? For those who have been oppressed, judgment is God's, God's judgment is God's answer, Right? And honestly, it's the only way to avoid retaliation if you think about it. Like if God's not going to judge, then I have to do it. Right? I have to take what's mine. I have to fight back. And, and it just continues the cycle of violence. And you see it in so many places where it just goes, continues on and on and on and on. But, but if there's a God who will judge, if he will take care of it, then there can, there can actually be peace, forgiveness. Friends, God's judgment is good news. course, it's also really terrible news. Because it's not as easy as just sort of saying, well, can't we just sort of punish those people over there, whoever they are, right, the evil ones? Because evil's in here. I know it, and you know it, right? I'm part of the problem. 
I'm, I'm one of the oppressors. I, I break and disregard God's law over and over and over again, and judgment is coming. And what I think is so fascinating about Daniel is Daniel knows that. He knows both sides of this. He can rejoice and celebrate that God will judge and he will make it right and his people will be restored. And he could celebrate that with God. But also in chapter nine, he pleads for God's forgiveness, both for himself and for his people because he knows even, even he's not innocent. Even he cannot simply be spared. Look at, look at chapter nine for a second. I'm fascinated by this long chapter, this prayer of, of repentance, of, of confession. And, and again, what's so interesting to me is that, that Daniel, not only does he see both sides of this, this judgment coin, he doesn't just confess his own sins. He confesses the sins of his people. He knows, even for things he couldn't have possibly done, things done long before he was born, he knows that there's a collective guilt on humanity. And so look, look what he prays, chapter 9, verse 3, for example. It's a long prayer. I'll just read part of it. But he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And then as, as he continues, he goes on, he uses phrases like, we have not listened. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. For our sins, he says, and for the iniquities of our fathers, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Yes, confess your own sins. But Daniel knows you and I have a whole lot more to weep for than just that which again is so hard for us culturally because we're, we are such individualists that we can't even see beyond the end of our own noses most times. And yet Daniel, Daniel weeps over his nation's 500-year history. We don't have to look back nearly that far, do we? It was less than half that time that we committed genocide. Us. Our people. And even shorter, that we, we enslaved an entire group of people simply based on the color of their skin, many of whom continue, even 160 years later, continue to feel absolutely discarded and unwanted in our society. We have murdered more than 50 million unborn children since 1973. We, we've done that. We continue to, to trivialize marriage and, and gender. And this isn't, this isn't those people out there, right? This is us. I don't weep nearly enough for the sins of my people, our people. We worship the gods of individualism and greed, politics and sexual freedom, materialism and consumerism and self-identity. And judgment is coming. Plead to God for his forgiveness. First for your own mess, because you are one. I am. I'm guilty. Also for those around you, closest to you, because they're guilty. But even for us together as a people, we, we are guilty. Judgment is coming. Get ready. Come on, don't look at me like that. It's the apocalypse. It's going to get ugly, right? Aren't you glad we're not done yet?
Because there's more to this story, more to our story. And again, that's what sets our, our end of the world stories apart. All the other ones stop right there. They, they include the other three points of, of judgment and wrath and ugliness and, and this weird sort of cryptic spiritual. All of it's there, but ours, ours, thank God it keeps going. That our story continues because God is the one who does this for our good and for his glory. So tip, tip number four, a better end is coming, so stay hopeful. A better end is coming, so stay hopeful. I mean, Daniel saw all this and he was terrified, right? And you'd be a fool not to be, right? To have a dream like that and not be terrified. But he saw just a little bit more. Daniel saw him. And he didn't, he didn't know who, who he was. He didn't know his name. He didn't know details about him. And yet he saw him. And actually he has a, he has a nickname for this one that he saw. He calls him a son of man. It's a name that 550 years later, a Jewish carpenter would pick up and say, that's me. I'm, I'm who Daniel saw. And for as Daniel continues to tell us about this wild dream, verse, verse 11, for example, he says, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. That evil will not rule forever. It doesn't get the last word in God's universe. And verse, verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, all of them, all kinds, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's our apocalypse. This, this is the end that we have. For Daniel glimpsed the Son of Man. And even, even next week, right, we enter into the season of Advent already. A season in which the church for 2,000 years has looked not only to Jesus' first coming, but also waiting, longing for a second. For our God doesn't just look down at these events. He actually, he himself has come. And he, he dies and, and rises again on our behalf to destroy the enemy, to throw the beast finally completely into the fire and all that is evil and broken and dark in our world and in our lives and to trade it out instead for us for forgiveness and life that he takes upon all this judgment that you and I rightfully deserve and he bears it himself and then welcomes us into a new kingdom a kingdom that begins even now one in which you and I are sons and daughters if you're a follower of Christ it's here now, even while we wait. For Daniel also got a glimpse of his return. That the Son of Man will come back and our waiting will be over. That his kingdom that we, we get a taste of now, that it will, it will be here finally, fully, completely. That, that Jesus, he is the beginning and the end. That apocalypse will come, but it will be for our good, for our, our restoration and renewal, for our hope and for our delight and for his glory. And so how did Daniel do it? How did he stay faithful to God in Babylon? Living in a world in which he didn't belong, longing to please the one to whom he did. How? I'm currently um, reading the old classic by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it, but some of you have probably read it. It's a haunting memoir 
of his life in a concentration camp, uh, which feels, I mean, it's different, but it feels a bit like Daniel, right? Daniel who lived through oppression and loneliness and loss and lions. I mean, out of control his whole life, his whole life waiting. But what, what interests me about, about this book in particular, Frankel's work, it centers upon something from Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, he, he said, uh, of all people, he, he wrote, uh, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. That if you understand the purpose of your life, uh, then you can endure almost any circumstance, even in a, in a concentration camp. That's, that's what that book is about, really. And I think Daniel would, would agree with that, but I think he'd take it a little bit further. He'd, he'd, go, he'd look, go a little bit more, and I think he'd say something very similar. And if you take one thing from this morning, frankly, if you take one thing from our eight weeks together, studying Daniel's life, just one thing with you, I hope it's this. I'm convinced that what's, it's what Daniel would want for us. It's, it's what he would say to us if he was here right now. That when you know the end of your story, you can withstand almost any middle. That if, if you know how the story ends then you can endure almost anything along the path to get there. And Daniel knew. He knew how it ends. He knew, even if it was vague and weird and frightening, he knew how it ends. And so do we. And people, it is good. And if this, if this is who our God is, if this is Jesus coming to return, then endure suffering. Refuse comfort. Live ready and stay hopeful, for a better king is coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your return. Come quickly. We're tired of waiting. We're tired of... of trying to manage our own sins and carrying them and fighting them. We're tired of the chaos and the, the pain around us, the broken relationships, the hurt. And we, God, we long, we long for you to make things right. I'm sure Daniel got tired of waiting. And yet, God, I pray like him, you would keep us faithful no matter what comes our way. God, help us to know and to believe that your kingdom is better and that we are citizens in it even now through Christ and that we can long together for the day in which you will make all things right. God, in the meantime, help us, help us to live well, faithfully, with integrity, with hard work like Daniel, with faith ultimately in what you are doing, not, not in ourselves, but in a God who comes to rescue us. And, and Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you've done that. God, help us to sing to you now as our king, the rightful one, the only one who reigns from the beginning to the end and beyond who we can know and love. We thank you, Jesus.